Good morning. My name is Julie Clark. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1 through chapter 28, verse 2. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men went with him, left and went over to Akash, son of Mac, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Akash. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Akash, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Akash gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gershites, the Gizarites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes, then he returned to Akash. When Akash asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Akash trusted David and said to him, He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Akash said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Akash replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. There's a famous quote in a book by a well-known theologian, and it, it's, it's actually the very first, on the very first page of this book, and it says this, what you think when you first hear the word God is your most important thought. And I want to point out to you that word think. What do you think about God? Because there's a lot of thinking in this text. A lot of assumptions made. Like three times, two different characters, they are thinking something about God. In fact, the very beginning of this text, verse 1, but David thought to himself. Did you see that? He thought to himself, the moment he begins to do the thinking and he's triangulating himself, his situation, and God, 
the moment that triangulation is off, he makes some really bad choices. And where I want to go with this is to have that question be asked of you. Not for us to read a text where David makes some pretty bad moves and for us to kind of, well, that wasn't a good idea. Hey, what's for lunch? But to say to you, what do you think about God in your life? So let me just start with a question I'll come back to before we're done. Do you think God is a liar? If you would immediately push back and say, no, 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 I don't. Well, let me ask you a further question. Do you trust God with your life? You, you just heard prayer requests of a sister right now in a hospital or people diagnosed with cancer or institutions struggling. So let me ask you, do you trust God with your life? Do you think he will make good on his promises for you? Well, this text shows us what not to do. David reveals that he does not trust God. He lets his doubts get the best of him. I want to show you in this text what happens when David stops trusting in the promises of God so that we can learn and do differently. Let's pray before we look at God's holy word. Father, thank you for your word, which ministers to your children. Open our eyes. Soften our hearts. Loosen our hands on what we grip for security or control. Make light our feet so we can walk in response to what you teach us today. Father, minister to us by your Spirit, through your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What happens when David stops trusting in the promises of God? First is in verse 1. David allows fear and self-protection to dominate the way he thinks about his situation. The opening words by the narrator. I love how the Bible does this. Learn to read the Bible this way. It's not just what the characters say. It's what you would have never seen that the narrator wants to point out. But David thought to himself, like it's like you're in his head. The narrator takes you into David's head so you can process with him. How beautiful is God's word to give us those kind of insights? David thought to himself. And he says, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Really, David? Like, let's give him, let's cut him a little slack. The guy's been chased by 3,000 men for how long? So imagine like the pinnacle of trauma and stress, absolute exhaustion, his family and the families of his cohort are involved. Like it is a mess. It's not like he's sitting there enjoying a, a, a basketball game some evening or having just a nice meal with the guys running from cave to cave and through the mountains. Like I get it. It is rough. But did you hear what he was thinking? One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Really? I thought you were announced to be the next king. 
Then he says this, the best thing I can do. Really? This is the best. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines, the enemy of God and God's people. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. As if God has not let you slip out of his hand how many times before? David, we've been following you. We've seen what's happened. None of this was true. That's where it went off track, like, right? It immediately went off track. My wife gives me a hard time all the time. I am, a, I am a, an abstract guy, which means I'm not good at concrete. Most people are in between the two. I am on one side. I turn the wrong way all the time, even in Roscoe. Right? No one will ever ask me, hey, will you help the youth kids get to it? They will not ask me that. They will not let me drive the van. And she's like, the moment you turn left, we're going the wrong way. Well, I know that now. I just want to see the beautiful trees over here. I regularly say as she shakes her head. But the moment I turned the wrong direction, I was going the wrong way. The moment he thought to himself, Saul's going to kill me. Not God's going to king me. The moment he thought, the best thing I can do is leave the land that I have been declared future king and go and hide among my enemies and ask them for favors. He was going the wrong direction. Had the Lord ever failed David? Had he ever, I mean, had God ever said, you're right, David. I, I, I can't fix this situation with you. Had that ever happened? I mean, we've seen account after account, like amazing victories. Had God not declared him the future king, nearly every text that we've looked at in 1 Samuel has depicted the provisions and protections of God. From Goliath at the beginning of David's anointing to last chapter, a sleeping army, he walks right through 3,000 men, and God literally put them in a deep sleep. Now, maybe he didn't get the advantage we get of reading God's word where the narrator's explaining, guess what? God literally made them sleep well so that David could walk right up and take the guy's water bottle and the spear, which was right next to his head. Like you just see that story. And then David goes, I got a plan. Brothers and sisters, do you do the same thing? Do I do the same thing? Do we allow fear and self-protection to distort God's promises for you? Now, please hear that carefully. Because we are in a, an American Christianity that now takes God's promise type language to make it health and wealth. Not promises of health and wealth, but promises that God will never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't mean you won't get the cancer diagnosis. It doesn't mean you won't have to deal with the situations at work. It doesn't mean all your problems go away. We're not talking about that. That's a distortion. That's, that, that's, that's a pagan version of the Christian gospel. Jesus didn't come and live with health and wealth. He came and entered into a fallen world. He suffered with us. He died for us. What do you think a Christian life looks like? You're in, you're in a fallen world. You're suffering with people. 
And you're sacrificing for your great king who one day says, I will wipe away every tear. I will heal every cancer. There will never be another funeral. You won't ever need hospice, palliative care. Your hospital beds can go. Your meds are gone. There will be no more divorces and brokenness and hungry tummies and little children. It will be gone. There will be no wars or fear. It'll just be the light, but not yet. One day, come Lord Jesus, but not yet. So don't, don't take this promises language to some kind of Americanized Hollywood version of all my sickness is going to go away, all my life is going to be easy. No, it's just simply God will never leave you nor forsake you. God never says you won't face darkness. He simply says that he is the light. I remember I was talking with a young man. This was, this was like at a, a rehearsal for a wedding, rehearsal dinner. I was officiating the ceremony. This is when we lived out in California. And sitting next to a young guy that had been in our young adults group at the church we were at in California. My wife and I were overseeing that for several years. And so I knew him well. And he had gone to college, did a great job going to one of the Cal State schools and got a job in a local elementary school where he was like a school counselor. He was in a room with a kid, real troubled kid. He did nothing wrong. This was verified later, but the kid accused him of saying, in a, accused him of saying inappropriate things to her. There was no recording. There was no video. I mean, he was in a room with windows. They, she made this accusation, which she admitted two weeks later was completely false. She just said that because she just wanted to go home. She didn't want to be in school that day. So his life got put in a tailspin. Immediately, properly so, they do a full evaluation. His reputation is completely tarnished. I mean, the guy's like a first-year, second-year teacher, whatever he was. All his colleagues look at him differently. He's on leave for those two weeks until investigators are involved, and the girl says, yeah, I just totally made that up. Sorry. He was angry, and he was angry at God. And I'm sitting there over chicken and potatoes, and carrots, and I say, how's it going? He goes, not well. He's want me, if he's, he says, if you want me to be honest with you, I haven't been to church in whatever many months. He says, God let me down. God let you down. Explain to me how that worked. And he told me that story. Notice this thinking got messed up there. Notice how that, that triangulation, me, my situation and God. You get that triangulation wrong, it's a problem. Uh, again, I was never the most mechanical guy, but I worked on a survey crew when I was courting my wife in Minnesota. And all I basically did was carry heavy things and dig ditches. But we worked with something called a geodometer, where you would go to these locations where they're going to build a bridge. This is downtown Minneapolis. And they would triangulate. And they would get precise numbers to give to civil engineers. And those civil engineers would use those numbers to build bridges, buildings, roadways. And my job was basically to carry this stuff for the smart people so that they could make the measurements. But I saw the precision they needed to triangulate. You had to have some kind of a constant to figure out the variables to get the numbers so you could build a bridge, which had to fit perfectly between buildings and roads and for constructive purposes. You had to triangulate well. If one thing was off, you, you, you had a lot of problems. 
Think about if we do that with God. This young man took his situation and a horrible thing that was done to him, and then he triangulated that to God and was God was to blame. Well, imagine if we did that with every cancer diagnosis or ALS or everything that sometimes something goes wrong with our relationships or in our families. No. God's word says he will never leave you nor forsake you. He says you will have trouble. For every human, except for a couple who have been taken up in chariots, there has been some kind of a funeral, a death. That's how life works. David allowed fear and self-protection to dominate the way he thought about his situation. The second thing is in verses 2 to 4, it gets worse. David then flees Israel, goes to the Philistine, and associates with people and systems that do not honor or reflect God's wills or ways. He fled the land he'd been called to reign over for a people who were absolutely God's enemies. That's in verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. He, he brought each one of his men with him. And notice the text says, and their families were there. Think about this. What did this do to their families? You got all these little kids going to the Philistines. One wonders what the impact this decision by David made on the families of all his men. Let me ask you this question. When we distrust God, when we do thinking like David did thinking, how does our spouse or our children taste bitter consequences because of that? A third thing there is in verses 5 to 7. David negotiates a place for himself by capitulating the worldly power and protection. This is a remarkable set of verses. Look at verse 5 with me. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned me in one of the country towns that I may live there. He even humbles himself. This is the future king. This is God's chosen king speaking to God's own enemies. He says at the end of verse 5, why should your servant, referring to himself, live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. David trades the role of king in Israel for the role of servant in the Philistines. Like, don't miss that. That's almost a bit of a ceremony there. In fact, he tramples the favor of God and begs for the favor of a pagan king. You need to understand something here. There's, it's a bit more ceremonial than it might have appeared. In ancient times, a ruler would gift land to a person for required service. He just became a slave. So literally, David, let me get this straight. God is the king of you. And you're going to say, I don't trust you to be my king. I'm going to go find another king. Have you not been watching your former king try to do that? Have you not seen Israel say, we don't want you as a king, God. We actually would prefer to pick our own king. Seriously? How's that going for you? Again, we could sit here all day. And just point at David and say, that was dumb. And then just move on to lunch. And not see that the scriptures are a mirror into our own hearts. 
David now became a hired king of the Philistines. I want to remind you how far he has fallen from 10 chapters ago. Let me read you what David said to Saul in 1 Samuel 17 when there was an eight or nine foot giant wanting to fight him. This is what da- these are David's words 10 chapters ago. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul said to him, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, a boy, probably better translated. And he's been a warrior since he was your age. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued, listen to this. This is the same guy prior to however many months or even a year of being chased, hiding in caves. This is what he said 10 chapters ago. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. 10 chapters later, he actually goes to the Philistines and asks for protection. Don't think that we can't do the same thing. When life gets hard, when trials get the best of us, when we face the same temptations, what do we do? We begin to think. I think I got a better plan. If I don't do something now, something's going to happen. And we begin to doubt our Lord. It only keeps getting worse. Verses 8 to 11 describe what happens even further when David stops trusting in the promises of God. He negotiates not just with a pagan king, but then he covers his lies and deceit by slaughtering all possible Witnesses. Verse 8 describes how he would raid the people. He would attack an area. And look at this, verse 9. He did not leave, this, this is almost hard to read. He did not leave a man or a woman alive. Imagine him going through a village and literally people cowering in the corner of their little huts and he slaughters them. He took sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, clothes. Then he returned to Achish and he made a fiction. And look at verse 11. He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he, oh, there it is, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. He was thinking again. He not only lived a life of deceit, but he covered his tracks by horrible murders. To protect his life, he took the life of others. That is the exact opposite approach of Jesus Christ. For Jesus, he gave his life to spare the life of others. Or maybe this is just a rule of thumb for us. When we are acting in a way that does not reflect Christ, we are clearly not honoring God and our thinking has probably gone awry. Last thing to note, at the very end, verse 12 of 1 Samuel 27, and then the first two 
verses of 28, which complete this scene. David enters a world in which everyone becomes a pawn of abuse and evil. The king trusted David and said to himself, notice this, the narrator lets you hear what the Philistine king Achish is thinking. I love this text. It keeps telling him to be more thinking. He's like, David has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. So he's about to attack Israel, David's own people. David is the king, the future king of Israel. Now he's supposed to attack his own people. Now he's cornered. What's he going to do? David's advantage has taken a turn against him. For our text ends with David being forced, at least in words, to fight against Israel. Come back next week. Let's find out what happens. But all that to say is this. Do you really think, do we really think our sins will not be found out? Or that we can escape the sight of God? Again, we might ask, what was David thinking? What do we think? You'll notice a couple things as, as I kind of draw this to a close this morning. Let me tell you a couple things. Throughout 1 Samuel, in every text, God is being mentioned. Notice who's never mentioned in this text. God. He's never mentioned. There's no God. Second thing, there's no mention of prayer at all. Like numerous times in several texts, David takes it to the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. We, we have the same book. We have said that is a model. David is a model of trusting in God in your circumstances. But he got to his breaking point. He, he let go. And here, notice, he's not going to the Lord in prayer. He's not seeking the will of the Lord. People would say to him, hey, this is your chance. But he would go to the Lord. Lord, what should I do? I cannot touch the Lord's anointed. You don't see that here. There's no sign of trusting or waiting or obeying, as we've seen numerous times. Just fear and self-protection. The same David who acted this way in 1 Samuel 27 wrote the following words from Psalm 62. You ready for this? Same guy. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from God. Not from Akish. Not from the Philistines. My salvation comes from God. Psalm 62, verse 2, truly he, God, is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How, David, could you write that in Psalm 62 and then live this in 1 Samuel 27? And before we get too hard on him, let me ask you the same questions. Do you think God is a liar? Do you trust God with your life? Do you think he will make good on all his promises for you? Again, not some prosperity gospel promises that all your sicknesses go away and all your relationships and even all your past brokenness is perfectly healed. No. 
but that he is light in the darkness. He is the long-term healer. He is with you and will not forsake you. So let me end with some pastoral exhortations that we can take from this text. First, do not let your thinking lead you down the path of doubting God. Don't be a doubting David. God has not and cannot fail you. Make sure you stick to his promises, not your own prosperity. I think that was the major error that that young man made. Now, less than young, he's well into his 30s with several kids. That I told you that story about the guy that was falsely accused at his school. The mistake he made is he added to God's promises a level of prosperity. And when he didn't get what he wanted, well, then obviously God had failed him. Learn from David's mistakes that fear and self-protection will end in destruction. Know your bent. Know it. Know that when things get hard, and brothers and sisters, I'm one of the pastors in this church, I know full well that for many of us, things get hard. In fact, it would be fair to say that for everybody in this room, there have been moments, or there currently are, where life gets really difficult. And how you triangulate in those moments, you yourself, your situation, and what you think about God. Remember that theologian said, the thought you think about God is your most important thought. And maybe then we need to pray David's words, not in 1 Samuel 27, but in Psalm 62. That we need to direct our soul to find rest in God. David should have listened to his own words. Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in Him at all times. David, did you know you would write those words when you were living for Samuel 27? He's preaching to us. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 62.8 is the message for you to hear today. Because I can't even imagine all the various burdens or temptations you feel to not trust in God because of brokenness in your body, brokenness in your family, brokenness in your community at work, brokenness in relationships, brokenness in our world. We are all living in brokenness. And it would be real easy to try to Think through it or around it and exclude God from the picture. So before I pray for you, let me read again God's exhortation through a broken David to us in Psalm 62, 8. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. Let's pray. Father, you are our refuge, and we, like David, can have a difficult time trusting in you. 
Maybe because we add promises as benefits package we add to your promises. We demand that you be our genie or our butler or our therapist and not our king. Help us, Father, to entrust our souls to you and to allow you to be our rock and our fortress. Help us to pour our hearts to you when we have a hard time trusting, when we are exhausted from the fatigue of this world. Thank you that you loved David and cared for him with perfect providence and your assigned provision. And thank you that the same God of David is the God of the Christians at Hope Evangelical Free Church. The same God. Same perfect provisions for our needs. Same protection. Same fatherly care. Now added the permanent residing gift of your spirit and the guarantee of the work and person of your son. Help us to to rest in you for our souls to trust you even when our bodies are struggling. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.